Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. Glad to have you with us today as we move to part two of our podcast on the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI and the conclave that will choose his successor. Today, as I said, part two, Dr. Samuel Gregg is going to be talking with Michael Matheson Miller about the conclave, the process that will be used to choose the successor to Pope Benedict XVI and what should be on the cardinals' minds as they go about that important process for the Roman Catholic Church. Here now to discuss the issue at hand is Michael Matheson Miller with Dr. Samuel Gregg. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation on the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI and the upcoming conclave, uh, where the cardinals will get together and they will elect a new pope. And so people are thinking it's probably going to be somewhere around mid-March, so it is very possible we could have a new pope uh, before Easter. And obviously this news was very shocking, and so the conclave is different. There's a little bit of a different spirit to this conclave. I don't think the conclave is going to be anything different than it normally would be, but I think the spirit might be slightly different because people will not be mourning the, the death of Benedict XVI. Um, and I also uh, think, you know, some people have speculated, well, will Benedict try to influence it? And, and I, one, he will be a retired cardinal over the age of 80, and in order to be a, a voting cardinal, you have to be under the age of 80. And second of all, I think if Benedict XVI really wanted to influence the Catholic Church, I doubt he would have resigned as the vicar of Christ on earth. So <laughs> That would seem rather contradictory for someone to do that. But um, one of the things we talked about uh, before when we talked about his resignation was um, the context of the new evangelization and... The context of John Paul II's and Benedict's uh, XVI's papacy in relationship to the Vatican Council, Vatican II. Um, Sam, what do you think are going to be some of the kind of major themes that the cardinals are going to be thinking about uh, as they enter into conclave? Well, there's obvious ones that most people have already talked about, the weakening of Christianity in the West, the challenge of religious liberty that's being faced by Christians throughout the world, particularly in the Islamic part of the world, uh, questions of how one uh, deals with modernity in general. These are not these are not new questions. They're ongoing questions that the Second Vatican Council dealt with to, with to a certain extent, as well as the John Paul II and Benedict XVI. But <clears throat> that said, it does seem to me that looking forward is how does one bring the truths proclaimed by the council, the Second Vatican Council, through the interpretive lens of the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, how does that how do we bring that to bear upon a world in which <clears throat> life for Christians life for Catholics is getting in some respects more and more difficult everywhere, not just in the West where of course we're facing rampant secularization and growing hostility, naked hostility, actually, to the church, but also in the, in the Middle East, where Christians face life and death persecution every day, to places like Africa, where, where Christianity is growing, but so is Islam, but also places like Latin America, where it's arguable that Christianity and Catholicism in particular has been there for a very long period of time, but whether it's really shaped the culture is an entirely different question. So I think that the, part of the question many cardinals will be asking themselves is 
who can guide the church as it seeks to engage a culture that is throughout the world very, very different, especially in the West, to what it was even 20, 30, 40 years ago, where things that would have been thought unthinkable even 20 years ago are now very thinkable and, in fact, becoming real. Uh, but it's, it's, also there, it's not just bad things. It's also, there's also opportunities. How does one reach out to those, for example, Jewish thinkers or even some secular thinkers who look around the society and realize we've got some really serious problems in our society when it comes to our understanding of things like the nature of reason, uh, the, the nature and the ends of marriage, uh, what a democracy is supposed to be, the type of culture a democracy is supposed to have, and how, above all, does one spread the message of Jesus Christ in these cultures in a way that's authentic and convincing to many people whose default position is essentially one of skepticism, not just towards religion, but basically to any sort of intellectual commitment that be- means going beyond what I happen to feel right here and now. Well, you know, the other thing that's interesting, if you look at some of the polls that come out, um, say, in the United States or in Europe even more so, uh, there was a poll I saw recently in Ireland. Um, I think it it was maybe maybe in the mid two thousands, the first decade of the of the twenty first century. They did a survey of uh, Irish youth, and I I'm, I'm try- remembering this off the top of my head, so I might not get all the numbers right. But it was about between the uh, Irish youth between the ages of sixteen to twenty four, about only thirty three percent of them knew the three persons of the Trinity. And only about 24% of them knew the names of the four Gospels. And so what you have in in Europe and and increasingly in the United States and Latin America is you have formerly Christian cultures where Christianity in many ways is not new. Everybody kind of thinks they know about it. But don't. Right. The churches are there. The architecture is there. The social institutions are are there, although being hollowed out in many ways. Um, but people don't know about Jesus Christ. They don't know who he is. And I think this is going to be uh, an interesting challenge. I mean, we're not talking about here Africa yet or, or Asia, but just even in Europe, United States, and Latin America, how how is the faith presented to really a post-Christian society? Mm-hmm. And I think one one of the things I think is interesting in, in the work that John Paul II and perhaps especially Benedict XVI did is going back to the fathers. Mm-hmm. Because people like Clement of Alexandria, I mean, the fathers... Augustine. Right, Augustine and, and, and Ignatius of Antioch and all these fathers, they were dealing with really evangelizing a pagan society. And, and um, in many ways, Europe and increasingly the United States is similar... To the society that the early fathers had, and I think, and I think the other thing is too this: the two things about Benedict and John Paul stood out were, were not just intellectual and moral clarity, but personal desire for holiness, a prayerfulness, mm-hmm. and I think that's why young people, let's say at, at World Youth Day, were attracted to these otherwise elderly men, were had fan clubs because they saw something unique there, and I think maybe that's going to be something also that the Cardinals are looking for is. Not just intellectual and moral clarity, not just vigor, but personal holiness, a prayerfulness that that is attractive. Yes, because uh, there's basically two alternatives facing the church. One is to go down the path of what some people describe as liberal Christianity. Well, guess what, people? That's been tried, 
and it's failed miserably, especially in Western Europe and parts of North America. And this is one of the reasons why there is so much unbelief. Correct. I mean, correct. why don't you talk a little bit about that? Right, because once you go down the path of basically saying Christianity is whatever you want it to be, that Christ is a holy man, but he's not really God, or we can't really know much about Christ because the scriptures are highly unreliable, uh, that and the whole hermeneutic of suspicion starts to take effect, and that the church is an institution that can be just moved and changed and shaped to whatever we want it to happen to be to fit fit our needs, our interests, our passions, our desires, our idiosyncrasies, our deviancies, etc., etc. Once you go down that path, it's no longer Christianity. And if you look at those parts of the world, those churches, those um, ecclesial communities that have embraced uh, liberal Christianity, they're dying or dead. Right. It's very clear. You see the same thing in the Catholic Church with those religious orders, particularly the female religious orders that went down this path, they're literally dying out. They're literally dying out. So, but that's that's one path. It's, so, but I think it's pretty obvious, even to some of the, these people themselves, that it's failed. The other path, of course, is to go down what you're suggesting, this path of going back to the sources, bringing the church fathers, the, the patrimony of the church to bear upon contemporary problems. And it's really new evangelization. I think there's two dimensions of this that, that a new, the next pope will be tackling. One is the need for substantial and solid and attractive catechesis. Because after the Second Vatican Council, let's face it, catechesis went into free fall. Right. Uh, uh, the idea that one had to be formed and taught and, 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 and assent to the truths of the faith went away for a lot of people, the particularly idea. among the clergy. Yeah, the idea of formation. Right. The both idea, human right. formation, right. intellectual formation, right. theological formation. Right. It all wasn't really things. important. That's right. And now, I'm not saying that all that was done perfectly well before the council. I don't right. think it was because right. I'm not sure everything would have fallen apart so quickly after the council if everything had been so great beforehand. But that type of being able to show that evangelizing people requires this deep formation of people who are in many cases nominal Christians. They've been baptized, but their parents haven't taken them to church. And they're not even necessarily hostile. Right. It's just that they literally know nothing about the, the truths of Christianity and the joy and the hope that it brings to people's lives. So someone who can not only teach this, and argue it, let's not forget that, because the early church fathers, they had no hesitation about getting up and arguing with the pagan philosophers. I don't mean dialoguing, I mean arguing, disputing, and showing where they were intellectually on the wrong path. Well, you know what I think about dialogue. Dialogue usually just means capitulation to secular left. Right. So dialogue is not what we need. We need a philosophos. We need a love of truth. And I think sometimes dialogue is just political compromise, but the church... When it's strong, the church where it's vibrant, whether it's in Europe, the United States, Africa, or Latin America, it is, it is strong because it's telling something that's countercultural. It's different. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. And people are not going to dedicate their lives to something unless, there's, unless it's true. Right. And so I think this whole dialogue um, idea um, has really failed. Right. We've seen the limits of it because when it comes to... Uh, it, it becomes a way of talking yourself out of what you really need to believe to be true if you're a serious Christian or a serious Catholic. That's that's what it becomes. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, di- obviously, to, to correct. I mean, I think that neither of us are saying that dialogue is bad. No. Depending no. on what you mean what by you dialogue. What you mean by the word. And what has, it has meant for many people is Christians just sit there and listen. 
and basically are expected to adopt to the expectations of the world rather than saying, no, dialogue is about where we actually have our say about what we think is important and, and we believe this is true and we believe that this should be shaping you, not just us. Well, and this just a quick interjection here. I mean, this is exactly what Benedict Sixteenth did. Yes. I mean, he did this from within the homily before he was elected pope when he engaged the dictatorship of relativism. Mm -hmm. He did it in the Regensburg addresses when he dealt with reason. He did it in Space Salvi when he dealt with progress. He was engaging in real, authentic conversation about those elements of modernity. Right, because basically his line is, tell me what you mean by progress. Tell me what you mean by hope. What do you mean by faith? What do you you mean mean by by freedom? What do you mean? Yes, what do you mean by freedom? And what you discover is that he quickly identifies how they understand these things and then says, but here's a better way of understanding it. Or you've got part of the truth, but you've only got part of the truth, and that means you're wrong, and this is why it needs to be further fleshed out. So a pope who's able to do this intellectually, uh, but also in a way that shows that he himself has assimilated and formed himself in these truths so that they are part of him as a person. That personal witness is extremely important because... Both John Paul II and Benedict XVI, outstanding intellects. There's no question about that. But as persons, I think there was always this sense that they were good, holy men. And for many people, that's more convincing in some respects, especially in a cynical world, that's more convincing than fine arguments. You need both. You need both. Absolutely. I mean, I think like if you look at Benedict's writings, he talks about this, that he actually even said, one point as cardinal and i'm paraphrasing of course but he said you know more than kind of clever apologetics what's needed is sanctity right right and and authentic beautiful worship and i think this goes to this this you know kind of a a one of the modern words that people like to throw around is authenticity Mm -hmm. you know i think sometimes it's 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 used in actually a bad way whereas authenticity means do whatever you feel uh, and I don't think that's authentic because uh, freedom has to be oriented to truth and to reason. But there, but there's the positive sense of authenticity in that this person tries his best to live out what he teaches. And I think that Benedict XVI and um, John Paul II did. Correct. And whoever is the next pope will need to be able to model that type of witness, which can't be, it's partly intellectual but it's also a question of who you are and the way that you live your life. And also being, I think also, whoever the next pope is, they're not just looking for the intellectual qualities, they're not just looking for the holiness. I think they're also going to be looking for someone who's joyful about the faith, someone who who takes delight in the truth, someone who sees the human excellence and lives the human excellence that comes through freely choosing the good, the true, and the beautiful, and all the virtues, and able to articulate that in a way that people become attracted to it and they want to know more about who is this person, Jesus Christ, that this, that this man in white is talking about all the time. Right. I, you know, what I, I sometimes think back to um, the homily where Benedict talked about the dictatorship of relativism, mm-hmm. and I think this is a great uh, example of what you just said. So he was talking about the dictatorship of relativism, and he was saying, you know, that the the boat of Christianity has been thrown around, blown by the waves and the winds from one ideology to another. And now any serious creedal belief is is now labeled fundamentalism. And he says we're now in a dictatorship of relativism, right? 
Um, but it's interesting then how he he answers. I mean, what's the problem with a dictatorship of relativism? I mean, obviously it has to be a dictatorship because any truth claim undermines relativism. Right. But but also that people are lost. People don't have a standard of good mm-hmm. by which to judge our lives, and so we're we're kind of moving around and floating, and and we don't know how to make good decisions. Our intellects aren't ordered. Our moral lives aren't ordered, and they can't be. In, in a state of relativism. But it was interesting because what he what Benedict said in that homily is just what you were talking about. He says, however, we have a different answer. Right away after he's talking to the, the, the dictatorship of relativism, he said, we have a different answer. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, true God, true man. And he talks about a mature faith creates a friendship with Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's in this friendship with Christ that our intellects are ordered. Our moral life is ordered. And I think this is what you, was what we saw in Benedict. It's what we saw in John Paul II. It's what we see in the saints. And, and, and I think this is going to be, hopefully, in the mind of, of cardinals as they're looking at, you know, what kind of person to look for. Yes, I think that's all true. And I also think that uh, there'll be a great temptation whoever is elected Pope, to box them in as either they're a Westerner or they're a doctrinal enforcer or they're a manager or they're an administrator or they're from the Courier or they're not from the Courier or they're particularly Italian or they're whatever. But all those things, I think it's important to realize, they don't really figure, I think, in the minds of the people who elect the next Pope. I think they're looking for a person not because they're from a particular part of the world, not because of their skin color, not because it's time to have a African, Asian, Latin American, whatever, Pope. They, they don't think that way. What they're thinking about is who can most authentically undertake the responsibilities of what has been given to the successor of Peter, which is to guard the deposit of faith, but also to teach the deposit of faith in a way that is joyful, attractive, so that Uh, We're like now Paul going into the marketplace in Athens and explaining to people who our God is, using reason to show them that God is reasonable to believe that God is, is true, that he exists, and then pointing to Christ as the one who tells us even more about who God is and even more specific characteristics uh, that I think the Second Vatican Council says reveals man to to himself. To himself, right. Which yeah. is very, very important because it shows you the uniqueness of Christianity, the importance of the incarnation uh, and the resurrection. And it tell, it's a it's it's really I think what will be in most cardinals' minds when they think about these issues. They don't think like secular politicians. They're well, looking for a man who's holy and who can do all the things I think that we've just talked about. That's a very hard. <laughs> a very f- hard role to fill, but Catholics, of course, believe that the Holy Spirit gives the man the gifts to be able to undertake this job. Right. I think you also hit on just an important point. I mean, one of the things that is going to probably be frustrating in the next coming month is having to listen to kind of secular press or ex-priests. Yeah, or ex-priests. Yeah, that's we won't even go that far down. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know this kind of this. Uh, the secular press, you know, trying to make it into American democratic politics. And it's just not American democratic politics. I mean, listen, we know that that, that these are human beings and and they're they're obviously front runners and all this kind of talk. But but this is not it's not a democratic election. And I think one of the things that is going to be helpful 
when we look at the conclave is to is to not try to understand it through the lens of modern democratic politics. Correct. Correct. Because that is the way that so many people think about everything. So there's no reason why they wouldn't think about uh, the election of the next pope in the same way. But they, it's not it's not like that because it's not what's not it's what's at stake is not power. What's right. at stake is who the Holy Spirit wills to take up the task that was given to Peter almost 2,000 years ago. And that puts a very different complexion on a mere political election. Well, you know what else is interesting? This is post-conclave. I mean, they saw this with Benedict recently. When he was elected, oh, well, you know, he's a theologian or he's shy or he's an enforcer. But very soon after, all of the kind of media stereotypes of him began to fall apart. And I was actually in, I was in, in the UK uh, when, he, when he came. And so I saw him at, at the beatification of uh, Cardinal Newman and I was reading the press there and it was interesting. I mean, even, you know, the, some of the hostility and, the, and the, the ideas, all the the caricatures of him. And then he got there and all of a sudden, like it almost immediately fell away. I mean, obviously you had, you know, the Dawkins types who were just keep on uh, chirping no matter what. But but you saw the English people. You saw it when he came to the United States. Like, wait a minute. This is not the person we imagined. And so the media, I think, is going to try to, is to, whoever it is, is going to try to, Characterize them. Well, he's an African, or he's a European, or whatever he might be. But um, but I think both in the way the in the way the um, the cardinals choose, and also in which whoever cardinal becomes pope, I mean, is going to be a lot more complex than the and, and a lot more interesting. I mean, I think sure. human beings are a lot more interesting than political categories allow for. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a, what happens in a conclave. I think is very illustrative of the limits of politics and how sometimes politics is the wrong way to think about things and sometimes politics isn't just just isn't that important in a whole range of spheres of life right. uh, that we often assume it is. But in the case of uh, the election of the successor of Peter, I think you're right that once the reality is made plain to people, all these stereotypes, all these attempts to box a person as as who they either want him to be or who they don't want him to be or or how they can basically dismiss him because he's not who they think he is all that goes away i think when the when when whoever is the successor of peter is able to let his personality and his particular gifts and his opportunities and his grave responsibilities shine on the world stage good well thank you sam again this is radio free acton michael mathis miller and sam greg talking about the next conclave. You'll notice we didn't get into the horse race or into the p- political things, but uh, uh, it'll be very interesting to see um, who the Cardinals choose and um, who the next successor to St. Peter is and leading the church. And this, as I said, could happen uh, before Easter. So it, it'll be an interesting Lent for all of the Cardinals who have um, the very important and burdensome job of electing the successor to Peter. So thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.